0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Anti-Politics of the Gospel, What We Learn from the Story of King Solomon. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 16th, 2009. In April of 2004, Greg Boyd preached a controversial series of six sermons called The Cross and the Sword at his 5,000-member church, Woodland Hills Church, in St. Paul, Minnesota. As he explains in his book that grew out of these sermons, The Myth of a Christian Nation, in the months preceding the national elections, Boyd wanted to warn his congregation about nationalistic and political ideology about identifying the Christian gospel with any point of view. You wanted to warn them of cherished but badly mistaken convictions, like the belief that America is a Christian nation, or that believers should, quote, take back the nation for God, end quote. No, Boyd preached in a single sentence that might summarize the entire book, the path through politics is not the road to God." Many parishioners thanked Boyd for his wisdom and boldness, but others weren't so enamored. In fact, about a thousand people left the congregation. It would have been far easier for Boyd to have remained silent. The relationship between religion and politics is complex, it's controversial, divisive, ambiguous, and often full of compromise. Thus the caution in the cliché never to mix politics and religion. But that's precisely what the Old Testament reading about King Solomon for this week does. Boyd did not preach that believers should avoid politics or that Christian convictions have no political implications. As the story about Solomon demonstrates, there's a prophetic critique of political power that avoids both the safety of silence and partisan ideology. A simple reading of the story of Solomon in particular, 1 Kings 1-11, in the larger context of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, reveals an obvious point that lots of the Bible is purely and profoundly political. This week's text from 1 Kings 2 describes the transition of power from David to Solomon. Further on we, we read about Israel's role in the geopolitics of Assyria, Edom, Egypt, Moab, and Tyre. We read about wars, Alliances made by marriage, famines, conspiracies, assassinations, economic trade agreements, foreign policy negotiations. We read about Solomon's massive building projects, the temple at Jerusalem and his royal palace, both of which were built by slave labor conscripted from resident aliens. And of course, we read about his incomparable wealth. Some of this reading makes for dreadfully boring reading because it utilizes government archives, bureaucratic invoices, and court records. In my Bible, this political narrative runs for about 250 pages and covers 400 years, from Israel's first king, David, until it's exiled by Babylon in 586 B.C., So, while some people counsel the safety of silence when it comes to politics, you definitely could not make that case from the Bible itself. God's revelation of himself shows that he cares deeply about and somehow interacts with human politics, government, and statecraft. In the New Testament, too, we encounter Jesus' announcement of an alternate reign or kingdom that is redolent with inherently political consequences. Jesus, for example, renounced violence and blessed the peacemakers. He favored poor people and warned the rich. He embraced ethnic outsiders and infuriated smug insiders. He partied with moral failures and flaunted religious conventions. So I find it frustrating to go to church and hear little or nothing from the pulpit about how, as a Christian, I might parse political developments like the consequences of war in Iraq, human, financial, and political, or the belligerence of North Korean missile tests, Hezbollah's insistence that it would destroy Israel if it could, or the fact that most people in Africa live in dreadful poverty. The story of Solomon thus reminds us of what the French sociologist Jacques Ellul said in his book The Politics of God and the Politics of Man. Quote, the Bible shows us that the church is not just a spiritual matter, that politics is not just simply a human action of no concern to us. It may be that politics is the kingdom of the devil, but this certainly concerns us as Christians. Other Christians make the opposite mistake. Instead of avoidance and silence, they reduce the meaning of faith to partisan politics. In general, liberal Christians identify with Democrats and conservative believers with Republicans. A closer inspection of the Solomon story shows why both alliances are equally mistaken. We do read about Solomon's wisdom in his earnest prayer when he dedicated the temple. But his story ends with personal corruption to pagan gods and goddesses like Ashtoreth, Molech, and Chemosh, whose practices included child sacrifice we read about national catastrophe when his son Rehoboam provoked a civil war that ripped the country apart and only ended with defeat by the global powers of Assyria in 722 B.C. and then Babylon in 586 B.C. In Solomon's case, religious sincerity was no guarantee of political or personal wisdom in the end, the biblical revelation about Solomon is tragic regarding political power. The larger Bible context is even more so. The political panorama of First and Second Kings includes the reign of 40 kings and one queen in 400 years, from the death of David to Israel's exile to Babylon. Only two kings received unqualified approval by the narrator. That would be Hezekiah in 2 Kings eighteen three, and Josiah in 22, verse 2. Rather, with monotonous regularity, over 30 times the narrator renders the ominous judgment that a king, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, end quote. Instead of the glorification of political power or nationalistic celebration, the history of politics is unremittingly negative, in keeping, by the way, with the dire warning in First Samuel 8. The narrative conveys a radical relativization, a subversion, and even judgment of Israel's politics, which is a remarkable feat when you consider that these are Israel's sacred writings, and that such negative conclusions about royal power surely must have put the author at some risk. Jesus insisted that the kingdom he inaugurated is not of this world, John eighteen thirty six. Pastor Boyd notes that almost all human kingdoms and powers go to any lengths to exercise power over others, political, economic, military, and cultural. But the kingdom of God that Jesus taught and modeled flourishes counterintuitively and paradoxically by what Boyd calls power under others a radically counter cultural mandate for an alternate ordering of human affairs. Jesus did not allow himself to be co opted by any political ideology or party of the day and he didn't engage in any political action. From his birth, when King Herod tried to murder him, until his death at the hands of Pilate, Jesus threatened the political powers of his day, not because he sought to control what they controlled, but because he undercut its pretensions and claims to supremacy. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is decidedly not Lord." And so concludes Gary Wills in his book, What Jesus Meant. Jesus did not acquiesce in silence before political power. He confronted it, so that the program of Jesus' reign can be seen as a systematic anti-politics. For further reflection, see the book by Greg Boyd, The Myth of a Christian Nation. How the Quest for Political Power is Destroying the Church. For books this week, we have a guest book review. The title of the book is Stephen Sanghiardi, Life on the Planet, Seven Stories, New Haven Wild Leaf Press, 2009. The book review is by Eric Rosenbaum. A friend, one of the author's former students, recommended this book to me. She even gave me a copy of the book, so I figured, why not read it? I was glad I did. Quite simply, these are some of the most original stories in the canon sense of the word that I have ever perused. Life on the Planet by Stephen Sanghiardi reminds me of T.S. Eliot's original title of The Wasteland. Namely, he does... He does the police in different voices. End quote. Every story but one, the opening story entitled "Murphy vs. Clark," is told from the limited omniscient third-person point of view. Every voice is different. The aforementioned story paradigmizes the unreliable narrator, narrator in the persona of a Sid Finkman an elderly Jewish man who narrates the tragic events which occur when two African-American families move into a white neighborhood in New Rochelle. The conflict that develops, however, features the wives of the two black families. I could not stop reading this irresistible story whose ending is both poignant and comic. Sandiarty likes to venture into intertextuality. This type of fiction occurs when an author goes beyond the text and introduces characters from a different well-known story, somewhat akin to what John Gardner did so well in Grendel and what T.C. Boyle does in a handful of his short stories. Intertextuality can also occur when the writer expands the original text into a fictional sequel. A case in point or Sanghiardi's story Orpheus Aging, The New Life of Michael Cassio, and Dido in Aeneas. The fourth story in Sangiardi's collection that brushes the outskirts of intertextuality is based on the second book of Kings in the Bible. This eponymous tale focuses on Elisha and how he is instrumental in making pregnant the widow of this scriptural text. What makes the story intriguing is Elisha's uncle, Gehazi the dipsomaniac, who proffers advice to his lovesick nephew. Freudians will have a field day with this tale, as Elisha sees in this aging, beautiful wife of another man a version of his late mother. The final two pieces in this second book, of, second book of Sanghiardi short stories are written in the more traditional mode from the main character's third-person perspective. The story Mother and Daughter relates the dread of a young girl awaiting her awkward mother's speech on the occasion of the girl Rachel's graduation. Betty Braco is on the holy name stage, and Rachel holds her breath, praying to all available gods and patron saints that her mother doesn't humiliate her in front of the whole parish what child has not been embarrassed by her public by her parents public display of affection the conclusion is a surprising epiphany finally the concluding story called inverse proportion is most likely a portrait of the author himself a high school English teacher who didn't quite live up to the expectations that his others had of him when he was a hotshot graduate student. This is a fine tale for anyone who rues the fact of his or her regrets that have replaced younger dreams and is t- tempted to displace attendant frustrations with dostoyevsky like madness on family, friends, and acquaintances. I found myself laughing aloud as I read this story. All in all, I found Life on the Planet to be a brilliant collection of stories, each one centering on a universal conflict—social, sexual, familial, and bestial. And conflict, it goes without saying, is what good fiction is all about. At times, the author seems to have have ingested a thesaurus, as we see in the more literary and mythological stories— and perhaps the one inverse proportion is a bit longer than it needs to be. Nevertheless, this is an original group of tales that vividly illustrates the fury and the mire of human veins. To top it off, wry humor is just as prevalent in these vividly told tales. I want to read more of Stephen Sangiardi's work. The title of the book, Stephen Sangiardi Life on the Planet Seven Stories The review is by Eric Rosenbaum. And finally, for film this week, I review Grand Torino from two thousand eight. Clint Eastwood directed, produced. And starred as Walt Kowalski in this drama about life and death in a changing America, Eastwood is more like his character type than ever before. Kowalski is a snarling Polish racist, a bitter retired auto worker, and a haunted Korean War veteran. He despises the Hmong swamp rats as he called them who's moved in to the dilapidated house next door. The film opens with two clashing cultural rituals, the church burial of Kowalski's wife, and the strange Hmong customs that welcome a new baby into the world. The film ends with another funeral that we never expect, this one the result of a deliberately redemptive act. Early on, we surmise that the gruff and grumbly Kowalski will be won over by his Hmong neighbors. But there's far more to the film, as Kowalski can't stand idly by and not help the Hmong negotiate their own cultural obstacles, namely Hmong gang members who try to recruit their son Tao. Large portions of this film are explicitly religious, as Kowalski experiences a dramatic conversion. Gran Torino, starring Clint Eastwood. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a bo- poem by Clarabel Alegria. Claribel Alegria was born in 1924 to Nicaraguan and Salvadorian parents, in Nicaragua. The title of her poem is From the Bridge. I never found the order I searched for, but always a sinister and well-planned disorder that increases in the hands of those who hold power, while the others who clamor for a more kindly world A world with less hunger and more hopefulness, die of torture in the prisons. Don't come any closer, there's a stench of carrion surrounding me. The title of the poem, From the Bridge, by Claribel Alegria. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 16th. 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.